Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Well, if you could begin to find your way to Matthew chapter 6, I'll tell you a quick story while you're finding your place there. Years ago, I saw this cartoon in the newspaper. I know I just used two terms that many of you may not even have a reference point, right? I said, <laughs> the funny paper's in the newspaper. And everybody under 20 is looking at me like, what's a newspaper? Yeah, well, it's this thing that used to actually, you wouldn't have to turn on the television at all. You could actually get the news and read it. I know it's foreign, but anyway, they had this, the comic section. There was this one particular one called Family Circus. Okay, many of you may understand what I'm talking about. Um, and it was literally a family circus. It was husband, wife, children. And there was a scene in this particular episode of this comic strip where the mother was tucking the kids into bed and was uh, encouraging them to, you know, forget to say your prayers before you go to sleep. And so it, it each little scene showed a different one of the kids you know, kneeling down by their bed and saying their prayers. But here's the, the odd thing. Each child simply thanked God for something they had enjoyed that day. None of the children asked God to give them anything or to do anything for them. And so then the last little scene was all the angels up in heaven just freaking out, like, what in the world just happened? They didn't ask for anything. They were actually just thankful. And that, that was such a bizarre thing because it never happened. Every, every time somebody prayed, it was always, God, do this for me, or God, save me from this, or God, help me with this. And it was never a situation where people were just thankful. And it caused the angels some confusion because that, that apparently had never happened before. So here's a question for us to consider today. Why do you believe people pray? Like, what's the real purpose behind that? Do we believe we have information that God doesn't have? Do we believe uh, unless we pray, God won't do anything? I, I don't. Those are things to consider. Rhetorical questions, of course. But Paul even told. The church in one of the more, more I think, more well-known passages, First Thessalonians chapter five, he says, "Pray without ceasing." Right? Always. So it must be kind of important. Prayer as a discipline for God's people. We're commanded. We're expected to pray. But what should it look like when the people of God obey this command? What is the real purpose? in praying. And I believe the, the text of Scripture, Jesus Himself, will help us understand that. So we're going to read today Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, and we'll go down to verse 15. So if you'll turn your attention to God's Word, here's what the Bible says. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. 
Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray you will speak to our hearts clearly today. That by your Spirit you give us understanding and that you would strengthen us for obedience. For your glory and our good. For Christ's sake. Amen. This text is familiar at least once you get to verse 9. Right? Verses 9 through 13... Uh, I can remember as a kid, uh, when I was growing up, once I got, uh, I don't know why I didn't start before this, but once I got to be 10 years old, I started playing sports. So I played baseball and basketball from the time I was 10 till the time I graduated high school. And I can remember even at an early age, at, at 10 or 11, uh, it was common before every baseball game, like our last little team meeting, we'd say the Lord's Prayer. That was just a part of the process. Uh, every baseball game that I can remember, even even when I was playing in high school, uh, and and then I know things were different, but that's been like a few years uh, ago. But um, things have changed in schools, and I'm thankful that. That wasn't even a question when I was in high school. We said the Lord's Prayer. But here's the thing. Were we really saying it? Or did we just repeat it because it was a habit or because it was part of what the coaches thought we should do? I think back on those times and I wonder if there was not as much meaning attached to what we were doing. Certainly not as much as there is now how much I... Uh, my understanding has grown over the years about what, what we were really saying and what those things mean. And part of today's message is we're going to take the Lord's Prayer line by line and really talk about what each part of it means so we can understand what we're saying. It's not just, you know, when something becomes that familiar, we could skip over the meaning of it. It, it works that way in songs. When we sing a song, if we... Uh, how many How many of you could probably sing Amazing Grace without a book or without a, a screen with words? 
right? Most of us, probably. Many of us, at least. There are probably other hymns. How great thou art, it is well with my soul. Songs that we just know. So here's the danger. If you know it that well, does it still mean as much? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you just know it so well, it's so familiar, you sing the words and don't really think about what you're singing and the profound nature of what it means. So we don't want that to happen when we're praying to God. So I want to just kind of go through this text today and understand what we're doing, what we're supposed to be doing, and hopefully we'll have a better grasp about prayer in general. Now the first thing we want to look at is a reminder. We need to remember your motive. And this goes all the way back to verse 1, because remember last week when we looked at verses 1 through 4, I mentioned that verse 1 is kind of the governing principle for, this, uh, for last week, this week, and next week. Because each of these three principles are governed by the same underlying principle, and that is this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Because you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. That's verse 1 of chapter 6. And that verse governs giving, praying, and fasting, which is what we'll look at within this series within a series. So we need to remember our motives. Why are we doing what we do? When we pray, why are we praying? Well, it's in our hearts. And that's really where we're going because, uh, you know, we can pray. I'll tell you a little quick, quick little anecdotal story. When I was uh, younger, I, I was in a church, I want to say it was about 1995 or so. So, yeah, it's been a little bit. But there was this guy in church. His name was Ben. And when he prayed... And he's, he was the, the father, he's the father of one of my wife's high school friends. But when he would pray, he, I mean, it just, it just flowed so perfectly. Every, it didn't matter what he was praying for or when, he was often asked to pray in church. And it just sounded so eloquent and so smooth and so well thought out. It didn't matter if he was asked on the spur of a moment, it was just... He, it, to me, at that age, where I, you know I'm 25 years old, not even, and and I I heard him pray and I was just I was impressed. You know, I'll just say it. I was impressed by how well he prayed in public. But here's the the negative. I thought he prayed so well that then I didn't want to pray in public because I thought well I'll never sound like that, you know. If if he prays and then I pray, people will probably laugh at me because they just you know I, I can't put it together like that. Until another experience in my life, I was in a band. I was a drummer. Uh, every time we'd rehearse, we'd pray. The bass player. One night we're about to finish rehearsal and we're standing in a circle praying, and he got. I've t- I may have told you this before. He got his words jumbled up a little bit. And this would have probably been ten years later. So he he's praying out loud, but he, he he got his words mixed up, and he said this while we're all sitting there, heads bowed, eyes closed, 
And when he stumbled over his words, he said, Well, you know what I mean, Father. And it just like, this light bulb went off. All this time, I, I'm worrying about what other people think about what I'm saying. I'm not talking to them, I'm talking to God. And he just, when he said that, it was just like this huge burden was lifted because he didn't care. And it, it didn't matter if we understood what he said. God knew exactly what he said because God knew his heart. And I thought, all this time I've had it wrong. I, sh- I shouldn't worry about what people think. I should worry about what God thinks. So remember our motive. But the second thing we have to do is consider what we're doing when we pray privately. And verse 5 through 8 really addresses this type of thing. Because there's two comparisons here that Jesus gives His uh, disciples and those listening to this Sermon on the Mount. He compares the hypocrite to the Christian and the Gentile to the Christian. And it's pretty straightforward in the text from verse 5 to 8. The hypocrite loves to stand and pray And literally, it means to be apparent to men. So, the hypocrite wants people to see what he's doing and hear what he's saying, and he wants to be impressive. Now, I go back to my story in church, Mr. Ben. uh, I don't think that was his motive. I just think he was just a really articulate dude, and he could really say things just perfectly. I don't think he was trying to do that. I think that's just who he is. So, that wasn't what he was doing, but these folks that Jesus is talking about, hey, I need to stand where everybody can see me, and I want to make sure everybody can hear me, and I want to make sure that everybody recognizes how awesome I am when I put these words together. That's what the hypocrite does. right? So they want to be apparent or noticed by men. And then what does Jesus say at the end of verse 5? They have their reward in full. I said it last week. I'm going to say it again today. probably say it again next week. Whatever compliments you receive, If that's your motive, you better enjoy it because that's all you're going to get. There's nothing waiting for you in heaven. If you're just doing things in a spiritual context because you want other people to think you're awesome, then really, you know, really relish those moments because God has nothing for you because that is an impure motivation. That's the hypocrite. But he tells the Christian then, don't do that. You go into your inner room and close your door. So you are isolated. You and God. It's just you and God. Pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It's a heavenly reward versus a temporary earthly reward. And then Jesus turns his attention to the Gentiles, uh, those who historically were without God. And then he talks about just praying uh, like like they've got a a Bible open on this side and they've got a thesaurus open on this side. right? Let me see how many times and how many different ways I can say the same thing over and over and over and over. Because if I say it enough, maybe God will hear me and he'll do what I want. That's what the Gentiles do. In fact, Jesus even says they, they suppose they'll be heard because of their many words. And he says, don't be like that. Now, I asked you a rhetorical question at the very beginning. 
So why would it not benefit us to behave that way? Well, look at verse 8. Don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now let me just take a few seconds here. Just drink that in. That should be an incredible source of comfort and encouragement to every one of us. There is no need you have in your heart. Perhaps you've told no one. Perhaps you are struggling with something individually in your life and maybe nobody else even knows about it. God knows. God knows exactly what you need. And He alone is the source of your solution. We don't have to rattle on and, and, well, I hope I say it just right so He'll hear me. No, 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 no. God's not listening to your mouth. He's listening to your heart. He, he sees. He knows. He created you. He knows where you are right this moment. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what's in your heart right now. He knows if you are sitting here because you really want to be here or if you'd rather be somewhere else. He knows everything. We can't possibly fool God. And thankfully, that's the case. He knows if we're genuine. He knows our motivation. But more importantly, He knows what we need. So don't listen. Just a side note. Don't be too upset or anxious if you feel like God has not answered your prayers in the way or the time you would like. And here's why. Maybe God's got something better for you. Maybe your prayers aren't big enough. Maybe your prayers are, uh, are, are negative in the, scheme, in the scheme of what God has planned out for you. And so if He were to answer your prayer, He'd have to shortchange you from what He had planned. We don't know. But we do know this. God is good. And God loves you. And He will always do what is best for you, even if you don't understand how that could be best for you. That's a hard pill to swallow sometimes. Because we pray based on what we know. Right? We don't know everything. God does. So when God says yes or no or wait, just remember He has all the information. He has information we don't have. When we have questions and we, we can't possibly comprehend, well, God, why did this happen? Or why did that happen? Or why did it happen like this? Or why didn't it happen like that? Just see if you can quiet your spirit long enough and listen for God to say, I know what I'm doing. I got you. Just trust me. It's going to be okay. 
that's what he's constantly trying to remind us. That's why Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the Gentiles. Don't pray just because you want to be seen praying. Don't repeat yourself over and over because you think you've got to say it this many times for me to hear you. That's not how it works. God knows you. He knows your needs. Just trust Him. Patiently trust Him. But thankfully, God uh, doesn't stop there in His Word because when we get to verse 9, we move from private to public. When we pray publicly, Jesus gives what many have called the model prayer, the disciples' prayer, the Christian's prayer. And this is the part I want to really want to break down with the time we have left to try to go through each phrase and help us to maybe have a more full understanding. In verse 9, when we pray publicly, Jesus says simply, pray then in this way. So how do we start? The first phrase, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now this may be the most important part of the prayer, not just because it's at the beginning, but because of what it's saying. Our Father. Galatians 4, 6 says, Because your sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Abba is a very personal term for Father. Personal relationship. We cry out, Abba, Father. He is our Father. He is in heaven. Now this next phrase, I don't know that I could really emphasize this enough. Hallowed be your name. Just a note. If you were to turn back, you don't have to turn there, but I'll give you the reference. If you were to turn back into your Bibles, into Exodus chapter 20, in verse 7, you would read the third commandment, which says, Do not take the name of your Lord in vain. Taking the name of the Lord in vain is the polar opposite of this prayer. It's the opposite of God's name being hallowed. Okay, let me, let me break that down a little bit. Hallowed means sanctified or set apart. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense for the hope that's within you. Set apart Jesus as Lord. Sanctify the name of your Savior. Hallowed be your name. That's our prayer. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your, be your name. One pastor... I, I, I heard this sermon. I don't even have a transcript of it, but I heard it. And so I sat there and pushed play and pause and play and pause and, and typed it out so I could get exactly what he said about it. Let me Let me share this with you. This is from another pastor's message about this prayer. He says, What does hallowed mean? It means sanctified. What does sanctified mean? For a God who is infinitely holy and doesn't need any improvement... Sanctified means set apart. Uh, set apart. God, set your name apart. It means, God, take your name, this holy representation of yourself, and set it apart as the most precious, 
holy, beautiful, valuable reality in my mind and in the mind of the person I'm praying for. You got anybody you care about? Pray that. That's the first thing to pray all the time. The number one issue in prayer is, God, right now, in this person I care about, work in such a way that Your name is treasured above my name. That Your name is treasured above everything else, above money, above alcohol, above fame, above approval, above success. Make Your name great in our hearts. Be jealous for Your name in our lives. That's the overarching, deep, unifying, global thing that holds all prayer together. I hope this holds your life together. A passion for the supremacy of God. I mean, what else could it signify when Jesus says, when you pray, say, number one, Father, make sure your name gets hallowed. That's amazing. Hallowed be your name. The choir even sang about it just a minute ago. The name of God. The name of God should be sanctified, set apart. It should be the most valuable thing. So that's what we're praying. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. What does that look like? The saving reign of God Almighty come down on earth. That is so needed. There's so much wrong in the world. It's not how God designed it. It's the effect of sin. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that look like? The will of God is perfectly fulfilled in heaven. And Matthew 5, just a chapter before, dealt with many things that will be non-existent in God's kingdom. You ever thought about that? When we were going through, uh, when we got to verse 21, 22, I think, the rest of chapter 5, there were seven different, uh, seven different things that, that Jesus dealt with. Listen to these, these things that, that Jesus dealt with that are not existent in God's kingdom. There won't be any need to talk about murder because there won't be any anger. There won't be need to talk of adultery because there will be no lust. No need to speak of divorce, no unfaithfulness. No need to speak of false vows because there will be no dishonesty. No need to speak of retaliation because there will be no enmity between anyone. No need to speak of loving our enemies because there won't be any persecution. There won't be any enemies. Not in the kingdom of God. That is what we're praying. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I want Your will to be perfectly fulfilled here as it is there. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, don't give me enough for the week or the month or the year. Give me what I need today.
And so I don't get lazy and don't get presumptuous. I just need enough for today so then tomorrow morning I'll come back and ask for tomorrow. Just, just give me what I need today. And tomorrow I'll ask again. See, if, if God gave us enough, maybe we wouldn't check in with Him as long as we had His stuff. Do we want God's face or do we just want what's in His hands? Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts or trespasses or sins as we also have forgiven our debtors or those who sin against us. This is not an instance of trying to earn forgiveness. It is an evidence of forgiveness. It's a big difference there. D.A. Carson wrote that an unforgiving spirit bears strong witness to the fact that we have never actually repented. Here's a truth in four words. Forgiven people forgive people. If you've been forgiven, you are more likely to offer forgiveness. Forgiven people forgive people. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God will lead us in the opposite direction of temptation, which is righteousness. And what was it that Jesus said we needed? In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. We need a better righteousness. Lead us not into temptation. That means God will lead us in the direction of the better righteousness, which ironically is Christ Himself. And as we're led into righteousness, we are being delivered from the evil one. Now this last phrase, I don't know if you noticed on the screen when we read through it, this last phrase was in brackets. And that's because this last phrase is not uh, included in the earliest and best, most accurate manuscripts. But it is true nevertheless. It's a true biblical statement concerning God. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It all belongs to God. It all is of God. He has given us these things as a, as a gift, as blessings. But the kingdom is His. The power is His. The glory is all His forever. So, although it's not technically in the oldest uh, manuscripts, it is very true and accurate from a biblical standpoint. That is the model prayer when Jesus says, pray then in this way. That's when we're praying publicly. So we've remembered our motive. We are looking at private prayer. We're looking at public prayer. Well, these last two verses just kind of remind us once more about forgiveness. We should remember to forgive. And these two verses kind of are an explanation of Matthew 6.12, which if you look at verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
If you forgive men their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive men, your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Once again, you're not earning your forgiveness. It's just a reminder. If God has forgiven you, then we should be forgiving others. And so the more we are conscious of how much, listen, how much has Jesus forgiven you? When you realize how much Jesus has forgiven you, you will be much more likely to forgive someone else. But in the moment that a Christian refuses to offer forgiveness, then maybe it's not a, an ongoing thing, but in that moment at least, we've forgotten how much Jesus did for us and how much we did not deserve it. So let me conclude. It is a foregone conclusion according to God's Word. Jesus expects His people to pray consistently. Pray without ceasing. The attitude of prayer constantly. So if you've read the Bible for long, you know that's a true statement. Jesus expects us to pray. The important thing for all of us to remember is why we pray in the first place. I asked that question as we began, why do we really pray? What's the purpose? Well, let me just um, let me just answer that question. The primary purpose of prayer is not for God to do something for us or to ask Him to do something for our benefit necessarily. The primary purpose of prayer is that God would do something in us. See, if we, if we don't have information that God needs, He already has all the information. If He knows our needs, if He's all-powerful, almighty, He's God, He's our Creator, He's our Savior, if that's who He is, if we understand His character then we pray because we want God more than anything else to do something in us. When we pray, we should be looking for God to work in our hearts so that our will becomes conformed to His will. Our agenda, our desires, whatever those may be, we want those to be conformed to His desires. Because we know that He's sovereign, He's almighty, and He is unlimited in His knowledge, so we know that His way has to be better. So whatever we think we know, our prayer should be, God, I know this is what it looks like, but I don't know everything. And you do. So just help me, help me follow you. Help me trust you, even when I don't understand Help my desires to line up with your will and your purposes. Help, help me to follow you, not try to get you to bless my plans. How often do we do that? Alright God, this is what we're doing, bless it. Instead of, God, what should we do? What do you want us to do? What direction do you want us to go in? How can we best glorify your name? 
that it would be hallowed everywhere. We need to be looking for God to prompt us to forgive others. We should be looking for God to bring unity to His body, the church. Ultimately, prayer is a pathway to becoming more like Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus prayed right before He was arrested? He was in the garden. He knew the plan. He knew what was ahead. And He said, Father, let this cup pass from Me. If there's any other way, God, I don't want to really do this. The human side of Jesus coming out. But His God side ended that prayer, nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. What a beautiful practice for us. Whatever we're praying, however we're feeling, whatever we're thinking, ultimately at the end of our prayers, nevertheless, God, not my will, your will be done. Your will be done for your glory. Let me close with this quote. John Dixon wrote a great book called The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission. Not really a secret, it's prayer. He said, The most basic gospel-promoting task, therefore, is not evangelism, it's prayer to the Lord of the harvest. Prayer is not a passive, sideline aspect of evangelistic commitment. It's a fundamental expression of that commitment. Not all of us will feel confident speaking to others about salvation. But all of us can be confident speaking about others to the Savior Himself. Whatever we may think or feel about praying or about the benefits or purposes of prayer, at its most basic level we have to understand God has given us prayer as a means to be in community with Him, to foster that good relationship with Him so that He can do work in our hearts and lives and we can become more like Jesus. So when we pray, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be Your name. I want Your name to be the most valuable thing to me. And then those other things will follow suit. If, if Jesus is the most precious thing to you, then these other things will take care of themselves. But that's where it starts. Hallowed be your name. Let's pray. www.berlinchurchsc.org